0: Uh, Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. So, anybody that's done Bible study with me knows that I love asking questions of the Bible. Um, I think it's one of the healthiest things we can do. When we're, when we're reading the Bible, we can ask questions. We can maybe write them off in the margins. We can, uh, we can look at them later. We can see if there's, there's answers to our questions because, frankly, some of the questions I've asked are dumb, and they, they're just dumb. It, when people say there's no such thing as a stupid question, they're wrong. So, so there's certain things that I've asked in the Bible, or I've asked of the Bible that I find, hey, you know what? I don't need to know. Uh, there's also been uh, assertions I've made that have been wrong as well. But, but I love asking questions of the Bible, and I love even more when questions are asked in the Bible, because then Jesus answers them, right? God answers the question, and then the answer's good. It's solved. Problem, problem solved. I don't have to worry about it. Or sometimes I don't really get the answer, and that raises more questions And I sit there staring at the text, like, what? (laughs) How does that? How did? What? That's what I get to—that stammering, stumbling, confusion. And this passage, frankly, was one of those passages for the longest time where I did not get it. Um, And 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 uh, I'm I'm grateful that especially this last week and previous times when I've read this, that, that there have been people who have helped me realize both that my thinking about it was wrong and also that there is an answer. There, that Jesus has a point. When Jesus says something in response to a question, he actually means his answer. That's it, his answer. So let's dive in. Let's go ahead and, and read uh, our passage for today. It's going to be verses 14 through 17. So just, just, I'm sorry, actually, just to set the stage, remember, they're doing, they're, they've are doing. they gathered in Matthew's house. Matthew was a tax collector, right? So they've gathered in Matthew's house. They're having this big uh, feast that Matthew paid for, and the Pharisees come up and ask, or they, they mumble in the background a question. And now, 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 after Jesus answered the last question, we get to question number two. So I apologize. Now let's read it, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away in the garment, uh, from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. So today we're talking about how to bottle alcohol. That's not true. (laughs) Um, All right. So when we dive into this text... It almost feels divorced, right? Jesus' answer almost feels maybe mystical or removed from the actual question, at least that last part, the last illustration. But let's work through it, right? So first off, what is fasting? Now, if you've been to the doctor's office and you've had to have a blood test, you know what fasting is, right? You don't eat anything, and then they give you that really gross sugar drink, and then bam, you're all hyped up, and they take your blood sugar and see how your body's handling it. It's the not eating, right? That's fasting, not eating. But fasting is not just abstaining from food for a medical reason. Fasting is supposed to point to something. It's, uh, we covered this several weeks ago, uh, but, but fasting is supposed to display our longing for God. Our growing hunger of food is supposed to help us understand our soul's hunger for Christ. So the act of fasting is supposed to show our dependency on him. It's, it's a regular practice for Christians. Basically, we deprive ourselves of food now to point to the day when there's no shortage of food in eternity. That's what fasting is supposed to do it's our reminder hey uh, we are hungry for god and we're hungry for the day when he comes back and so that hunger helps us focus on god that's that's the short version Um, and uh, now, now i mean the the point is that we abstain from food or we can abstain from something that's pleasurable now i realize that the word pleasure probably institute's particular thoughts of what I'm talking about but what I mean is that that we we uh, don't we don't do something we delight in for a period of time in order to remind ourselves that in God is infinite delight the same way that we deprive ourselves of food for a particular time so that when we come before or when we we look forward to Christ coming when there's no shortage of food does that make sense so uh, an example of that would be Psalm 16:11 you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's what we get in Christ is actually eternal unending pleasure from him that he he gives us in eternity. So denying ourselves a pleasure now on earth like chocolate uh, is is a is a right thing to fast from because, in Christ, there's greater pleasure than chocolate forevermore. And there's not much I can imagine better than chocolate, frankly. So, um, but moving on. So now that we know what fasting is—it's abstaining from food or something we delight in—now we can question why are John the Baptist's disciples asking about fasting? Why? Why? Why did this come up? So. Uh, at the time period, Jesus' time period, right? First century, you have, <clears throat> you have the Pharisees creating all these different rules and regulations on top of Old Testament uh, Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament law and Old Testament tradition. and they were doing this to try and try, well, we'll get to that, but, but, uh, but there was this practice that they had where they would fast twice a week. Twice a week, they wouldn't fast. Or they wouldn't eat. And this is actually something extra biblical. How often are you to fast? Is it twice a week? If you were to look just at scripture, how often are you to fast? Chances are, none of us really know. Because we've got these understandings that have carried on actually through, um, through, since the time of the Pharisees. Because biblically, there's actually only one fast. Only one one time a year. It's uh, it's at the celebration of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It's commanded in Levitica- Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. And Leviticus is obviously everybody's favorite book, and you have it all memorized, so I don't need to read any of it. Moving on. Actually, Leviticus is one of everybody's least favorite books because it tells all the sacrifices, all the rules, all the regulations. Uh, that, that, that we don't practice today. But on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, Israel fasts from food. Essentially, Leviticus 16, they afflict themselves and bring a food offering to the Lord instead of eating it themselves. So they make a meal, they're hungry, and you know that smell of roasting meat or that, the smell of soup that we're going to smell hopefully next week. Uh, But that smell, the smell that permeates your house, the Israelites on this day would make a meal and they'd take it to the temple instead of eating it themselves. And that is sheer affliction. I think afflict themselves is a perfect translation of what that must feel like. Because I think, like in my mind, I think of like the smell of smoking meat. Like if somebody has a meat smoker and they're like uh, making, you know, Oh, not pulled pork, but the beef one, the beef one that I can't think of, uh, not braised ribs. Pardon? Not baby, but well, same thing. But you, that smell, oh, you can't wait to eat it. But the Israelites didn't eat it. They would take it to the Lord. Uh, this is actually to look forward to the atonement that the Lord is bringing, knowing that it's his work and he's providing for it. So they're giving this food offering, remembering that God is going to provide for them atonement. Um, And Leviticus 1630, uh, for on this day, the day of atonement, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So this is an action supposed to mirror this reality that the Lord is, is providing them atonement, like they're providing for the Lord to eat, which then Later, I mean, in Psalms, that's that's taken away. It's not actually the Lord eating the food; He's just taking the sacrifice. But but in the days that Jesus walked the earth, the Pharisees took this one fast, this one commanded fast, and made it a twice a week deal. And uh, this fasting that they did was actually wrong, uh, like we read in Matthew six sixteen, when when Jesus says, "And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites." For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. So this twice a week fast the Pharisees were doing, they were looking extra super holy to everyone else. They were standing in the streets. Oh, that I could eat. Oh, the smell of the bread baking over there. Oh, I'm so holy. I'm making sure that I deprive myself of something delicious so everyone knows I'm holy. That's essentially what they were doing. They were looking righteous. They were looking self-righteous. And the disciples of John, John the Baptist, by the way, have been doing the same thing. Apparently. They've been fasting twice a week and they had been fasting regularly. So how come the Pharisees do it and we do it, but your disciples, Jesus, they don't. They don't fast. And... uh, it's actually probably that the Pharisees had incited this against them, because that's the way that snakes work, right? Like they they like to come in, they like to divide and conquer, they 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 like to cause dissension between people that actually believe. Which John the Baptist's disciples, they were they were John the Baptist was actually preaching truth. He was proclaiming a, a, a baptism of repentance. Uh, these these disciples of John the Baptist should have looked to Christ for salvation. We don't know why they're there. Actually, at this time, John the Baptist would have been in prison. So maybe these disciples of John, their leaders in prison, John the Baptist kept speaking favorably of this Jesus character. Let's go to Capernaum. Let's go to where he's doing his ministry and let's listen to him speak. And then they get there and they find out we're doing this twice a week fast. They're not. How come? How come they're not? And maybe the Pharisees had gone up to him and said that. Hey, we fast, you fast, they don't. So here they wander in to hear this Jesus guy speak, and they're following the traditions, these traditions of the Pharisees. They're, they're spending this time not eating. They were being so righteous, and, and Jesus' disciples aren't even doing that. What, what suckers? They're eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they're not fasting. Oh. Fools, but the way that Jesus responds to them is really quite clever, because are the Pharisaical traditions right? These extra twice a week fasts—what were they? Why, why were they instituted? Why were they a thing? How 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 come the disciples of John actually put their hope in these traditions? And their, their actions, their, they, they, they leveled their holiness against these actions. How come they were doing that? Well, and the way Jesus responds shows. He shows that, 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 that the old traditions, finger quotes, air quotes, scare quotes, right? Old traditions. The old traditions weren't actually displaying holiness. No, holiness needed to be found in something new, and someone knew. So let's, let's, let's work through Jesus's answer. So first part, right? In, uh, in verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Why didn't the apostles fast while Jesus was with them? Well, how, how could the wedding guests mourn when the, when the bridegroom is with them? Now, bridegroom is an old-fashioned term. It actually means groom of the bride but we just say bridegroom, because that's just been been something we've said for a long time. Um, but Jesus's answer, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is setting the tone of his response. Um, two, two things to note. Uh, first of all, bridegroom, the bridegroom, um, is, is God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is actually making something, making a very very clever statement when he is saying that that he is the bridegroom the guests they can't they can't mourn while the bridegroom is there in Isaiah 62 5 and Hosea 219 to 20, which are in the extra section if you want to read the whole chapters, but in Hosea two nineteen to twenty, God, uh, Hosea writes this, well, God says it, but Hosea writes it, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the know the Lord. So God is saying I'm going to betroth you to me. And if you know anything about Hosea as a prophet, you know why God is saying that. And you know the 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 emphasis around that. But but just think of that. When two people are betrothed, one is the bridegroom, one is the bride, one is the groom, one is the bride. One is one is the 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 uh one that's going to be um the husband, one is going to be the wife. In our culture that kind of kick something in the pants. Anyway, but but anyway, the, moving on, the, the, there's the groom and there's the bride in, in this, this image. And God himself is betrothing. He's the one who's going to be betrothing, which means he's the groom. He's the bridegroom. What Jesus is showing here by calling himself uh, the bridegroom, he's saying that, hey, that we are betrothed. Who's betrothed? We'll get to that. But he's trying to remind, he's trying to make this statement that, listen, I'm Yahweh, I am God, I am the great I am. And he's doing it slyly in a way that might not have offended the hearers if they wouldn't, if they, if they as they do later, they get offended. And think about weddings today, right? Do we eat before or after the wedding? Is it before or after? Wrong. Well, yes, right, but it's also wrong. There's the rehearsal dinner. Everybody's got to have the rehearsal dinner, right? The two families come together and they they celebrate and they 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 do the they do the rehearsal itself. Uh, but they have a rehearsal dinner. They're celebrating the fact that this is gonna happen. This wedding is gonna happen. Nobody ain't nobody gonna run off from anybody here, right? Like this is the rehearsal dinner. You're committed at this point. Should have ran off before if you were gonna run off. Anyway, but, <laughs> but, but the rehearsal dinner, you have a feast celebrating the upcoming consummation, the upcoming be, uh, uh, reality of these betrothed becoming one, being united. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, Jesus is basically relating his coming to this, this rehearsal dinner. When he says that they're the wedding guests, these guests are here. How can they mourn? The groom is here. Second thing that I want you to notice um, is 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 the use of the word mourn. I want you to focus on that. Jesus is essentially saying this: There will come a time when my disciples are waiting for the wedding day, but they aren't yet waiting for that day. There's no mourning right now, it's celebration. Think of the things that Jesus is doing. He's not just teaching. He's also healing people. He's he's undoing the realities of sin in all these people's lives. How could you mourn when this is happening? You can't. You're happy. These lame men are walking. These blind men are seeing. These these demon-possessed are coming into their right minds, and they're they're loving the Lord, and they're seeing things uh, rightly. How could you mourn? Oftentimes, Christians will say, man, I wish I could have seen the days that Jesus walked the earth. Why? Because now we're in mourning. We're mourning that he is not here currently. We are now waiting. When Jesus says, there will come a day, we are now waiting for the, for the wedding feast. We're waiting for Jesus' return. But God has provided that there will come that day. There is that, that final meal of salvation, of deliverance, of restoration. It's coming. It's coming. So let's mourn the fact that it's not here, but we also celebrate the fact that it is sure. Now, what of if, what if Jesus' illustrations? He gives those two illustrations, right? What do we make of them? And how might we relate that to fasting? What does what a, a, a garment uh, and a, and a wineskin have to do with fasting? Do you drink more wine when you're fasting? No, no, that's a bad application. We call, we call that a misapplication. Um, so the, the, the point of both of Jesus's illustrations is that the old cannot bear the weight of the new. Especially in the wineskin, right? You've got the wineskin, and uh, so a, a wineskin grows old. They used to sew this pouch uh, and fill it with wine. And if if you if you drank it all and then you refilled it with wine, the leather that they would use would become brittle, and it would it would just one day pop because it's brittle on the inside, and the dry air on the outside would just make it unusable, and it would just pop and. Everywhere, and usually it would happen at the shock of new new wine apparently going in. Uh, the other the other illustration is is well the first illustration is the the, the unshrunk cloth or the unshrunk like patch. Um, nowadays we don't really worry about that. But imagine you had a a a, pa- a a a tear in your shirt and you wanted to fix it and so you ma- basically made a band aid out of cloth, but it's not shrunk. So then when you put it in the wash, what happens? Shrinks. It shrinks, and then it tears all the thread out and actually makes it even worse. Those two things make total sense to me. I get it, but what does that have to do with fasting? Well, the question isn't actually about what it has to do with fasting. The Pharisees had created these traditions of hundreds of do's and don'ts, they had taken what was the Old Testament and they had tried to patch it up. They'd actually tried to modernize it, would be a good way of saying it. They, they were trying to make their faith fit the culture at the time. And that's what all the rules and regulations were. They were trying to, trying to understand what was happening in their culture, what was possible. It's not re- you know, we're not really tracking genealogy the same way, so we can't just have Levites as priests because we don't remember who's a part of the tribe of Levi, so anybody can be a priest, but then they got to come in, they've got to do all these things, and they got to fast twice a week, and that's one of the things we're going to do. Well, those things were basically unshrunk cloth. They were tearing apart the Jewish religion. They were tearing apart the Old Testament. They were were breaking it. They were bursting these wineskins. They were destroying everything that existed in this this faith. Ain't nothing wrong with a wineskin except when you keep trying to put new wine in it. They wanted to make their ancient religion fit their current culture. Fasting itself is not wrong, but fasting as, as, as an act of religiosity, as, a, as some sort of a requirement necessary for God to hear you, that is wrong. The Pharisees had, had created these various practices by, by snagging or cherry-picking Bible verses, essentially, uh, from these Jewish practices, making, making them required to be a Levite, making them required to patch up their religious system. So the essence of, of what Christ is doing by ushering, is he's ushering in this new covenant of grace, it's, it's not meant to be an addition like the Pharisaical rules and regulations. Instead, it's supposed to be a true consummation of everything that was old, shedding off all these, all these old parts that had tried to, tried to uh, fix up what was, old, what was uh, maybe not modern, and going back to the original pure intention of everything and, and renewing it, making it fresh. It's supposed to be something brand new, something that doesn't try to repair or fill the old, but will replace the old and provide something new. Now, I I, I need to be careful as I say that because Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. We are not meant to unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith, uh, which is a charge that one famous pastor made probably about two years ago when jesus says especially the the, the old the old wineskins and the old wine uh, what jesus is, is not saying is i'm going to take this wineskin and replace it with a refrigerator he's not saying i'm going to take take am uh, i'm i'm going to take this garment and make it no longer a garment but instead i'm going to make it a blanket He's not transforming the old, he's, he's, he's renewing or replacing or regenerating the old. It's not something completely different, it's something completely new. If you had a broken transmission in a car and you decided that you were gonna replace that transmission with a Coke bottle, would it work? No, we're not talking about something completely different. We're talking about a new one, one that works, one that does, does what it's supposed to do. Coke bottle ain't going to do it. Coke does a lot of wondrous things. That's not one of them. So Christ is not obliterating all that existed in the Old Testament. Instead, he's fulfilling it. So in, in Matthew five seventeen to 18, Jesus says this, Do not think, do not think, do not think. Making that clear, do not think, do you understand? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. No, what we're supposed to see here is not that Jesus is throwing it all out. Instead, he's replacing it with new. So the Old Testament remains fruitful to all Christians. I don't want to drive too much into the weeds here of how, how much is the Old Testament worth, worth reading for Christians. It's of every value. We'll just leave it at that. So I don't want to drive too much into there. but the Old Testament remains fruitful to all Christians today, uh, retaining its original shape, seeing that a wineskin is a wineskin and a garment is a garment, and then we get new ones in Christ. So Christianity, is, it, it's not a different faith than Judaism. It's the new and true faith of what the Bible promises. And I know our religious marketplace likes to put, you know, Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, Christianity. Uh, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but, but, but it likes to put all these things on an equal marketplace and, and almost like you're going into a mall and you can go into the store that looks, looks the best to you. That is not what it is. Biblically, that's not what it is. We are not in a religious marketplace. What Jesus has done is he's taken this true faith in the one true God and he has given it anew. The old is not unimportant. Do not think. The old is not unimportant because it helps us see what Christ is coming to fulfill. He took what man had tried to patch, what the Pharisees had tried to fix, and instead, he takes it and he gives it anew. And I realize that's a hard thing for us to understand. Intellectually, we're not, going to really, we're not going to be able to, to take uh, an apples-to-apples apples comparison here. We're not going to be able to look at Jewish tradition, especially modern-day Orthodox Judaism, and even compare it with the Old Testament. That's not what we're meant to do. What we're meant to do is, is look at the Old Testament and through it see the wonders of grace in Jesus Christ. I don't have to slit the throat of a bull anymore. Hey, good news. I don't have to make it bleed all over an altar. Why? Because Jesus bled all over the cross to pay for my sins. Perhaps we should illustrate what Jesus is saying here by way of of actual, actual application. So that's why I didn't have a PowerPoint or anything, because I'm just putting the applications at the end. So application number one, we're not supposed to be syncretistic of our old lives. That's a great word, syncretism. We're not supposed to take what's old and kind of fashion it into this new. Does that make sense? When somebody goes from unsaved to saved, they do not become a completely different person. The old does not not exist anymore. Try that Try that with a serial killer. Let's say a serial killer comes to Christ in, in prison. Are they free? Can they just like go out of jail now and uh, go live their lives and be a farmer? No. No. They still got to serve their sentence. The same is true when you came to Christ. And I know some of you came to Christ when you were young, so you really don't have like a a pre-understanding of it. But for those of us who became Christians older, we understand that our personality is not nullified. Our likes and our dislikes are not nullified. Our actions are not just forgotten. We remain the same person, but... As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is dead. The sinner in me is dead. I am a new creation. But frankly, sometimes that corpse likes to stink and remind me of the old man that I was. And I do, I do the same things I used to do. Such is the way of the Old Testament, sacrifices and requirements. They're not required anymore. Why? Because we've been given a new wineskin. We've been given a new garment. It's still a garment. Just like I I am the same old new man that I was that I'm not anymore. That doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. It only makes sense if you're a Christian. Because frankly, we don't really get it but we get it, but we don't get it. (laughs) So if you don't get it, praise God. If you get it, praise God. There we go. So knowing that I was going to run out of time today, I gave you those Bible verses. Um, By way of application also, what should we do knowing these things? Well, we know that the Old Testament anticipated this, this new work Uh, Isaiah 43, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, if you read Isaiah 43, the context is brilliant because it's actually about Israel's failure, their their constant, incessant failure, and their, their, their just condemnation by God. And God is saying, I'm doing a new thing. And what do you do? You reject me. So we've been waiting for this new thing that God was going to do, and it comes in Jesus. Also, another application, you need to fast. If you're a Christian, you need to fast, mourning the absence of our God and waiting for his return. And that's where Revelation 19, 6 through 21, I think it's 31, but I put 21, Revelation 19, 6 through 21 Look forward to that. Jesus, Jesus says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So, you will fast. You are to do that. You need to reflect on the, the, the failure of your old, the old life, and the, the victory in the new being in Christ. Salvation's only in Christ, it's not in a religious system that's patched up. It's not in you being syncretistic, which means to synchronize the old with the new. It's not about modernizing that old and and making it new. No, we don't need any, any extra holiness in our lives. Instead, we need Christ. So fast, building that longing, remembering that need. And it's also true in our own lives. We're not supposed to synchronize our old habits with our new selves. And, uh, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 33 helps put that in, in order in our own minds. It helps us understand that, that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. But whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, especially out of new wineskins. Sorry, bad. That, that was a joke that didn't even make sense. Moving on. So uh, so you, we, need to, we, need to, we need to think On how wonderful of a salvation we have. We need to reflect on the fact that it's not just the old made new, it's the old dead and now new. And we also need to remember remember, we cannot put on the new life of Christ and try to live our old lives. We can't. The wineskin will burst, the garment will tear. We are different. And praise God, we're different. Let's pray. Lord, trying to figure out how to... Understand the Old Testament and the New Testament and together is a lifelong process, a lifelong process of delighting in you above all things, a lifelong process of repenting of sin, a lifelong process of being sanctified, being made holy by, by your actions, your spirit in us. It's a lifelong process looking forward to, to the eternal life we have in you at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, hear hear our declarations of this truth, but also hear the cries of our heart pleading with you that these these would be made visible in our own eyes and in our own minds and in our own hearts. Bring us to a state of desperation, if we need it, where we might repent. But encourage us in our states of suffering, so that we can see and taste the new wine skin, or the new wine and the new wine skin. You are so wonderful, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise be to the Lord, who came not to refurbish an old religion, but instead came to bring it anew. Go in peace, saints.